1: Welcome,
2: everyone, to a Baseball America podcast, along with Jim Callis. I'm John Manuel. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's our Major League Baseball draft 2013 signing deadline spectacular. And, Jim, uh, I think we've been doing these for uh, four five, six years uh, with the signing deadline podcasts, and they used to have a lot more drama. But the CBA, I, I guess it's still new. But this is a second year from a draft standpoint that it's been like this. And as you wrote at baseballamerica.com in the latest issue of the magazine, uh, and it's online as well, baseballamerica.com, the new CBA has kind of sucked a lot of the drama out of the signing process. Um, what's the easiest rationale for, for why it's been sucked out? Do you think it's more the the the, the hard bonus caps that I mean, they're pretty hard caps that, that teams have? Obviously, some significant penalties. If you go over your cap, or is the earlier deadline the reason that the drama has been sucked out? Which which one do you attribute more for the reason for why things are kind of tidier now than they used to be?
1: Uh, definitely the former. I mean, what it boils down to is under the old system, uh, even before, you know before you, we we used to not have a signed deadline before 2007, and then just guys could go on indefinitely. But under the old system, going back to 2000, when MLB tried to informally slot the draft and they tell teams what they should pay each of the draft picks. You know, and the numbers weren't really reflective of market value. I mean, by the time the old CBA ended, not that this was part of the CBA, the slots they were using in 2011 were, were, I think, even lower than the slots they used in 2005 or 2006. Right. But if you signed for more money than MLB thought the pick should deserve, which, you know, was probably, you know, a couple hundred different players in a given draft, MLB would pressure the team and basically not allow the teams to release, you know, or officially announce the signings until right at the end. I mean, the last year before the deadline, it was crazy. I think we went into uh, to the, the final day of the draft in 2011 with something like, you know, there were 33 first-round picks that year, too, and I want to say I think 23 of them were unsigned going into the final day. I mean, yeah, right was, now we have... this was a huge number. Yeah, and right now we have 16 players total in the first 10 rounds unsigned. It was, it was You know, and then... You know, the last day in 2011, the team spent $139 million on the draft. Right. (laughs) That's not, I'm not misspeaking. $139 million on the draft. Last year, with the new rules, you know, with the new rules, what they basically did is because there's now penalties if you spend more than MLB thinks you should spend, and the the pick values are much more realistic than the slots, which isn't a surprise since they were negotiated with the union rather than MLB just coming up with them. You know, the MLB's attitude has become, look, we don't have to police this. We have rules. You spend too much, you're gonna you're gonna get essentially pay a draft tax or lose a draft pick. So we're not going to try to you know keep deals under wraps because it really doesn't matter. You know, just because. You know, one team goes crazy on a guy, doesn't, you know, I, I never really bought, John, that the, the, just because, you know, right. Player X got $2 million in the second round, it was going to create havoc with everybody else in the second round. But MLB doesn't care anymore. And so now, I mean, as it should be, one of the best things about the new rules, I, you know, I can sign a guy for $3 million in the eighth round if I want to on draft day and announce it, and MLB doesn't care. So, so that's right. basically... It comes down to by having the penalties, MLB doesn't feel like they have to police anything more. You know, if, if you spend too much, you're going to pay a penalty. So go ahead and announce the deals whenever you want. And it's, it's it's much more refreshing because, I mean, I do think, you know, we all knew. I mean, a lot of those deals in the past wouldn't get announced until the last week or the last day had been done months in advance. They just teams had to sit on them because MLB wouldn't let them release the information.
2: Yeah, and the other, obviously the other benefit, uh, whether it's. You know, to the benefit of the players, financially or not, or for anybody, but for us as if you're a baseball fan and if you're interested in scouting and player development, which if you listen to this podcast, you probably are, is that so many more players are out and playing. And I don't know that I ever thought it was a huge detriment to wait. Uh, We had a lot of uh, Scott Boris Corporation's clients that I can think of over the years who held out and had waited and had waited and still had very good major league careers, um, but it did seem like there were a couple guys over the years who that affected. And it seemed like as a group, as an industry, it didn't make sense to draft players, then make them sit for two months and then have them start their careers later. And this seems like a, a very tangible benefit. It feels like, Jim, has been a lot more players getting out and playing in that first professional season when they're, playing, they're making their first professional debut the year in which they sign as opposed to the next year or an in instructional league.
1: Oh, yeah, and I think everybody in baseball would agree with that. I mean, you could, you still get some d- debate uh, you know, over, okay, I don't like this about the new system, but everybody on all sides likes the fact that guys get out and play. Because the thing is, you know, a lot of these guys who had these overslot deals at MLB would would keep quiet and they wouldn't announce them until the end of August, and then the right. guys, you know, the season's basically over, are high school players, you know, because they have more leverage. You know, you're, you're compensating a lot of those guys for the value of giving up college, which means different things to different people. But, you know, a lot of times, you know, I might pay – You know, a guy, a million and a half dollars in the third round. And instead of him going out and getting 200 at-bats, you know, in the minors, he doesn't play that first year. So then if it's a high school kid, if I want to send him to low class A for what's his first full pro season, that becomes very difficult. You know, he's not prepared. You know, I just to give you an example, Carlos Correa last year, the number one overall pick, and he signed real quick. You know, Carlos Correa got 200 plate appearances. Well, which is you know almost unheard of under the old system, and you know, he's been able to jump to to low class A this year at 18 years old, and he's hitting 325 and having a great year. You know, a lot of these guys, you know, Byron Buxton, you know, he he signed for six million dollars, which under the old system would have been overslot for the number two pick. He would have signed, you know, probably at 11:55 Eastern PM on August you know 15th, and instead he goes out, he gets 190 plate appearances, and and he's already in high class A, and and you know in my mind, you know, is it, kind of showing he's best prospect in the minor league you know and, and there, there's all kinds of examples of that it's it just it, it benefits everybody to get guys out playing
2: yeah and uh our mid-season prospect update is online at baseballamerica.com today as a matter of fact and byron buxton is number one on that uh, on that list and uh, not far behind him is carlos correa so uh, I, I think that signing benefited both those guys and i always kind of contrast uh buxton with uh, bubba starling who was a guy who needed those extra plate appearances and uh, was a two-sport guy. I think he gets unfairly compared to Buxton. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but that was the type of guy, Jim, who really needed to go out instantly and not wait two months. And uh, I remember there were a lot of – there was gnashing of teeth and some thought that these new CBA rules would preclude and would hurt two-sport – a baseball opportunity to sign two-sport athletes, but it seems like it actually helps the opportunities to develop two-sport athletes because it does get those players signed quicker and – and get them more playing time. That's a little tangent. I don't know if you want to talk about that before we kind of dive into the unsigned players. but
1: uh. yeah, yeah, no, sure. I mean, I, I was just going to say, I mean, I didn't crunch the numbers this year, but I mean, one thing we found last year was – you know, the fear was with the new rules. Oh, it's going to be harder to sign high school players, and especially the two sport guys. And we're, not, we're you know, now granted there hasn't been a two sport guy like Bubba right. going that high in the draft, you know, since then. But but the bottom line is, we found you know last year the percentages of top high school players who signed were identical to what they were under the old system when you could pay guys what you want. That that a teams. Found a way, and you know, we've seen it with drafting a lot of college seniors around 6 or 10. Teams will shift money around in their bonus pools to find way to pay, find ways to get high school players signed. And, and B, you know, this is a new reality. You know, I always use the the, the, the comment under the old system, if, I, if I'm trying to sign you, John, I could say, John, I can't pay you X amount. And you could say, yeah, you can, Jim. You can pay me whatever you want. Right. Now, I mean, you can go to our website, and people do this, whether you're an agent or a team, and you can see exactly to the dollar... How much you can pay any player without giving up a first-round draft pick, which, which I don't believe anybody's ever going to, you know, purposely give up a first-round draft pick. Maybe somebody will screw something up and accidentally do it, but like you know, now, it's very obvious what you can afford to pay any one player. And for some high school guys, where in the past maybe you would have gotten a million dollars, and now under the new reality, you know, the team can only give you seven hundred thousand dollars without forfeiting a first-round pick. A lot of those guys are signing for seven hundred thousand dollars. I mean, they're they're feeling like I, I think that in general guys are feeling like, hey, if, if they're paying me everything they can or I can see what they can pay me, I'm getting treated fairly. It may not be as much as somebody got two, three years ago, but it's still a lot of money and I'm going to sign. There's, there's still guys who want to play pro ball now rather than go to college. So, uh, you know, I don't, I have not sensed at all that, you know, I haven't run the numbers this year, but, but baseball is not losing a higher percentage of players to other sports. Or a higher percentage of, of of high school players to college ball for three years than they were under the old system. Right,
2: and oh, that's actually one of our questions. Um, well, but we'll jump right into that one because we, as always, if you want to send questions to us, you can tweet those at us. He's at Jim VA You're over thirty thousand followers now, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I think um, I have not checked in a while. I'll do 32. a quick quick.
2: Thirty-four thousand seven hundred and eleven. So, man, that's impressive. I think I'm at, I uh, I'm around eleven, 11K, eleven K, eleven thousand and change, eleven two sixty four. So, that's a, a modest. Uh, I, I'm, I'm impressed with myself that it's a more modest total when, uh, when contrasted with that of uh, Twitter giant Jim Callis. But he's at Jim Callis BA. I'm at John Manuel BA, and Mike Rooney, former uh, assistant at Arizona State and a, a college baseball analyst at on ESPNU broadcast, asked. Um his question was regarding trends, any trends you've seen in the draft with high school kids giving up college to sign or juniors giving up their senior year to sign. My hope for the new CBA was that more talented players would end up in college. He thought that happened last year and that they had he thought that he, the the freshman and senior classes in college baseball were stronger, but he feels like he's seeing a ton of college juniors and high school kids signing for the 100,000 or something near that. The official question is, do you see this draft as a good the the, the draft rules as good or bad for the talent level in college baseball, this particular draft I should say the twenty thirteen draft will the result of this twenty thirteen draft be good for college baseball or not as good for college baseball as maybe someone like Mike Rooney had hoped
1: um I probably not as much as Mike would have hoped, you know, like I was just saying, I don't even think last year that there was a disproportionate share of talent that that went to college either out of high school or, or for senior season than there would have been uh you know under the old system. I just. I agree. I mean, it's it's funny. My my oldest son's going off to college in the fall, and so I'm still you know experiencing. You know, you get sticker shock with orthodonture, and now I have sticker shock with college tuition, and it amazes me. But I mean, you see, you see high school kids signing to play pro ball for like 150 thousand, 200 thousand dollars when you know, and I know not a lot of guys are on full scholarships. But um, you know, when they have the chance to, to go to college and at least get part of their college education paid for, and and I'm a huge proponent, and I'm sure people in pro ball will disagree. I, I, John, I mean, and you and I have talked about this. I, I think talent's talent. That in the yep. vast majority of cases, if a guy's destined to make the big leagues, or, or destined to be a star, or destined to be a hall of Famer, or whatever he's going to be, almost every case he's going to he's going to reach that or or get to where he's going to get, whether he signs out of high school. Or signs out of college. You know, he may get there a little quicker if he signs out of high school because he's starting his career three years earlier. Yeah. But you know, we, I mean, just for example, the highest unsung guy we'll, we'll talk about in a couple minutes is Chris Bryant, the number two pick of the Cubs. Chris Bryant, everybody knew who that guy was coming out of high school. Absolutely. Um, he had a, he had a first round price tag. And teams were didn't quite want to give him that money. There were some questions about his, you know, his, you know, swing and miss a little bit. Obviously, people could go back and in the, in the hot tub time machine they would have signed Chris Bryant uh, for, for giving him whatever he wanted. You know, Colin hot Moran time machine. Uh, it was on. It was on TV last night when I was flipping channel, So I threw out some hot tub time machine. But even you know, looking at these college guys, Colin Moran was a guy who wasn't a big time guy, but we identified him. We wrote him up as, as, as a prospect from New York. And Hunter Renfro, the third highest college player. Again, I mean, there was some skepticism about the. Competition he faced, but I mean, you fell in love with Hunter Renfro coming out of high school in Mississippi. Everybody knew who these guys were. These aren't guys who who came out of nowhere and you know you know and I said they've all helped themselves by going to college and they're all going to get more money. So anyway, I got sidetracked there. I just I, I don't think. You know, I think when the, when these new rules first came out in, in November 2011, the initial reaction when we didn't have all the details, we saw kind of like the summary points that MLB put out, was, oh my gosh, you know, nobody's going to sign, everybody's going to go to college, and it's just not the case. You, we're still finding that guys, you know, there still are a number of guys who want to play pro ball instead of go to college, yep. and they will play pro ball. You know, they'll sign for whatever they can get, and even if that number's less than what it was two years ago, a lot of those guys are still signing. Correct
2: me if – and I guess my sense here, Jim, is – and obviously we both talked to a lot of area guys and area scouts we're doing draft coverage for the draft preview issue. You talked to a lot more uh, scouting directors and, and uh, you know, general managers, agents, the people in the negotiations than I do. Um, but my sense with the area guys is that what the new CBA has done is kind of freed up the area guy. Again, there's just so much more information about what it will take to sign. It's not as much a shell game anymore. It's not as much of a mystery in in that it's still, I mean, there's still a lot of unknown. Everyone kind of plays their information close to the vest. You know, not everyone, but a lot of players you know, don't exactly want to put their number out before they, before the draft. But it seems that like the area scouts, I think, do a, uh, I guess with more information they have, a, it's easier for them to do their job on signability. And they spend more time, I feel like, assessing, and it's not necessarily a number, but this guy wants to play, this guy wants to go to college. And it feels like the clubs and the area scouts do a really good job of, Identifying the guys who do want to sign, and uh, and 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 then moving accordingly, lining up their draft boards accordingly. I I feel like they've always done that, but with the new CBA, makes it a little bit easier, I think, for them to really assess who wants to go, what it will take for someone to sign, and whether they can draft that player or not.
1: No, you're right. I mean, and they have to too, because I mean. It's against rule. It's against the rule, MLB rules. But but with this new system where you have a finite amount of money you can spend, and you need to know not just can I get this guy signed, but how much am I going to save, and then can I use it on this other guy, you know, and, and so on and so on. You have to know, and a lot of times, even though again this is against rules, teams are, are, are in almost every case in the first ten rounds. I think teams are, are contacting the player or contacting his advisor. You know, if I want to draft you in the third round, John, I'm calling you. I'm not just taking you. Even even if my area scout has pinned down what your numbers, what your signability is, I'm still calling you before I pick you or calling your advisor. Yep. I'm not sure who you select as your advisor, John. But I'm calling I'm, a, your I'm advisor. advising myself. Well, there you go. Save a little money. And, and, and I'm saying, John, look, you know, this is our slot in the third round. It, it's $680,000. But we're only going to pay 575. Will you sign for 575? And if you don't say yes or no, or you might even say yes, but I, I sense some hesitation, I get a little spooked. I'm not taking you because I need to know exactly. Almost all these picks, for the most part, not all of them, but almost all these picks, the teams want to know, and they do find out what is it exactly am I going to have to pay this guy if I take him here, so then I can plan the rest of my draft. Right, and you got to know. You just have to know. And uh, if you if you're not doing your
2: uh, if, you're, if, if the area scout's not doing it, uh, not doing his job, or the organization's not doing his job, you'd see a lot of, uns- you know, hard to sign guys in the first ten rounds. Instead, Jim, um, what we're seeing is, like you said, with the 16 guys in the whole first ten rounds, who are unsigned. So let's 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 get to that kind of the nitty gritty of the draft. I guess out of those first round picks, we have five first round picks who are unsigned. We have media reports today uh, by a friend of BA. Uh, uh, Matt Stevens, I forget the name of Matt's paper. I always get it wrong. The Columbus, well, the Dispatch down in the Columbus, Starkville, Mississippi area, reporting that Hunter Renfro's ready to sign. He's one of those guys, um, you know, ready to sign with the Padres. Um, you, have, <clears throat> excuse me, have Aaron Judge, 30, 32nd pick overall by the Yankees, one of the three Yankees first-round picks. Uh, so there are four college hitters: Chris Bryant, Colin Moran, Hunter Renfro, Aaron Judge and then one high school pitcher, Phil Bickford. Um, are any of those contentious, Jim, uh, especially uh, – we'll, we'll just put it in the current context. Are any of those contentious by new CBA standards? Or, or, or do you have uh, – uh, would Chris Bryant maybe be the one that has
1: the highest percentage chance of not signing? A, is it higher than 5%?
2: No, yeah, I mean, I
1: don't, I don't think any of them are contentious. And, and then I, I'm probably always more optimistic, a little bit more optimistic uh, than I should be and I think than you are. But I, I do think these guys are going to you know, the thing is with Chris Bryant, I mean, I think in most of these cases, okay, I think in, I think Hunter Renfro is a separate thing. Hunter Renfro, I think, was just more of a logistical matter where he played real long in the College World Series. He obviously went to the College World Series finals. Yep. And then with the 4th of July coming up and July 2, you know, teams do international signings. I think the logistics of figuring out when he was going to take a physical just took a while to map out. So I think Hunter Renfro is probably the least contentious, and he'll probably be the first guy to sign. These other four, I think, are all come down to, for the most part, the team wants to sign the guy at the assigned pick value or close to the assigned pick value, maybe a little bit less, and the players are all trying to get over the assigned pick value. I, I mean, I know... And I wrote a column, you know, the Mark Appel saga, I think, worked out for everybody. You know, Appel, Astros, Pirates, Scott Boris, and Chris Bryant's a Scott Boris guy, too. Th- that assigned pick value number is $6.7 million for Chris Bryant. <laughs> now, the values are going to go up next year. But, like, really, the only way Chris Bryant gets more money next year, and he would have less leverage as a senior, the only right. way he gets more money would be if he went one or two. I mean, right. I, you know, the Cubs, the, the Cubs have money to play with. I mean, I don't think they're necessarily going to give him over slot. Or actually, they're a little bit over budget right now. They could go another 300000 or so over without giving up uh, a draft pick. You know, I don't know if the, the Cubs are trying to sign somebody late. You know, they could pay Chris Bryant $7 million, But I, I just can't see Chris Bryant, even if the Cubs said, look, we're not even giving you six million, we're giving you 6 or six point four so he gets a little bit more than Marco Pell or whatever. Uh, he can't turn that down. So, I mean, I, I just think it's a case where, I maybe mean, a game of chicken almost, where it's like right. saying, "Okay, look, you know, we're drawing the line. It's slot or a little bit under slot," and the players are saying, "Look, we want more than slot." And it's just going to be what it comes down to. I mean, if I had to guess, I mean, the guy who to me would maybe have the highest percentage chance of not signing would be Phil Bickford, and that's not because I don't think they'll sign B- Phil Bickford or that I'm worried that he's going to you know st- hold out for you know he's asking price before the draft reportedly was 4.25 million and the pick is has a value of 2.9 million I don't necessarily think it's 4.25 million or bust I just think as a high school player I can see the scenario where he goes to Cal State Fullerton and you know you know, get signed. But even with him, you know, the picks were 2.9 million. Is, is he really going to turn down 2.9 million? Right. Uh, I don't think so. So I think I don't think any of these are real contentious. I think it's more. You, know, you get to the point too with the signing deadline a month earlier, John. That if I'm any of these guys, like if Aaron Judge sign, you know, I have Yankees fans every day. You know, oh, what's going on with Judge? Why won't he take the slot? What's going on? Well, if you're in Judge, what does it matter if you sign? June 30th or July 12th. You, you no, lose, no like, difference. 40 f bats I mean, yep. you know, it's not going to make any kind of difference for him.
2: No, it doesn't make any difference. And, and really, to me, the Bigford's the most interesting guy out of those, like you said, because he's a high school player um, and, and because the Blue Jays. We didn't really touch much on Colin Moran. Jim, is this really just a... The one question I wanted to ask you about Colin, is this more of just kind of, like, par for the course of the Marlins? The Marlins, the last few years, Certainly have a reputation, I think, well earned, not by their scouts, but by their ownership, for kind of being cheap. And we just saw with Ricky Nolasco with that trade. You know, they um, they didn't really get great prospects from the from the Dodgers, um, but they wanted the Dodgers, You know, even with a 36 million 36 million and, and change big league payroll, they wanted someone else to pay for Ricky Nolasco's contract as opposed to getting better prospects back for him. We saw this with Andrew Heaney last year. Uh, they've had they've made things contentious needlessly so it seems like in in recent years with their top draft picks are, is it, is, it a, is it a similar scenario playing out here with Colin Moran at 6 overall
1: no you know it's really not you know it's funny cuz all what you said i mean they do have that reputation and right now they have three of their top 5 picks are unsigned in Colin Moran Matt Crook who's a supplemental first rounder and Ben Deluzio who's a third rounder and, it, and it's not that they're trying to be cheap or contentious. I, I just think with Moran, I think they were thrilled Moran was there at six. They weren't expecting it. Um, again, I think that's that's one of these kind of philosophical teams saying, "Look, he's not worth more than pick value." And the players saying, "I'm worth more than pick value." Uh, Colin Moran's not going to turn down 3.5 million if they hold firm at that number. I, I, I'd be shocked if he did. I mean, again, I mean, what, you know, I, I mean, he's going to come back and try to go in the you know first four or five picks next year. You know, the, the, their sandwich pick. Who, it's uh, it's a strange situation, we can't get into a ton of detail because he's going to go to college and I don't, you know, and there's, but basically the the bottom line with Matt Crook is, they were going to sign Matt Crook, they were happy to have Matt Crook, Matt Crook was going to be happy to be a Marlin, and an issue arose when he took his his physical that the team and Matt Crook's side didn't see eye to eye on. I mean, it, it wasn't even contentious. It's just the team felt like, look, with what the results of physical show, we can't sign you. And, and, and Matt Crook's side felt like, you know, they got some second opinions, got a clean bill of health. Well, we're not going to sign at a huge discount because he's hurt. You know, under the under the new CBA, if you have a guy that fails a physical, you either have to offer him 40% of his pick value – which in Crook's chance would have been about $650,000. You have to offer Crook 40% of his pick value or he becomes a free agent and you don't get a compensation pick for him. So they made that 40% offer, but Matt Crook, whose family is well off and he's happy to go to school, wasn't going to take a million dollars off his pick value to sign. And then with the third-round pick, Ben Deluzio, who's who's a high school shortstop from Florida, who's who's a, a Florida State recruit, I think that's just the case, and there's a few of these, and this happens every year where the team felt like they knew what it was going to take to get Ben DeLuzio signed, and now Ben DeLuzio is having second thoughts. And I don't even think in that one it's – from my understanding, I don't think it's that Ben DeLuzio is trying to get more money per se. I think he's just rethinking, do I want to go to Florida State or do I want to sign, as opposed to, hey, the number I agreed to isn't enough. I need more money. So I think in all three of those cases, even though the Marlins – um, I think now have more unsigned guys in the first 10 rounds than anybody because the Blue Jays have, have gotten a lot of their other guys signed the last couple of days. It's, it's not based on the Marlins trying to be cheap or contentious. It's, you know, two of the situations are kind of beyond their control. And I think Moran is just one of these, you know, both sides are going to probably see it out to the end. Um, and, you know, sometime on Friday, you know, one side or the other will will give a little bit or they'll meet in the middle and, and he'll sign with the Marlins.
2: And yeah, Deluzio is the other interesting one there. I, I, de- I definitely wanted to get into the whole Marlins thing but uh, I wanted to, we're, since we were focusing on the on the first round. But Deluzio is fascinating because he was not a consensus third-round pick. That's a, you know, it's a, it sounds like a, that was maybe what it would take to get him signed. Um, but that's a pretty athletic guy who would be – I mean, he's one of the guys, going back to Mike Rooney's question, Jim, where that would be a difference-making kind of guy for college, for a college program. Even like a Florida State, that's so that's a, a good program. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, he's athletic. They don't see him as a shortstop necessarily at Florida State, but <clears throat> they have a fifth-year senior, Justin Gonzalez, who would come back and play that position next year. But the, I know that, you know, just talking to them uh, during the spring, DeLuzio was a guy they really saw as a guy who would have a chance to play shortstop there uh, eventually, but would probably start <laughs> as a freshman, second base or third base and be a potential difference maker on a program that's you know, already had a very strong freshman and sophomore classes there. The talent level of Florida State's really, you know, in my mind, they just gotten a lot more athletic the last couple of years, last two, three years um, as a program. And, you know, this is a guy who, if he does get to school, um, would be uh, the kind of athlete that was rare to see in college baseball. So I don't know if you would credit the CBA, like you said, maybe – this is why
1: and I think I agree with what you're saying. I don't think it is the CBA. I just think you know sometimes kids get yeah. cold feet, for want of a better term. Where I think,
2: I think the know, deadline is the bigger issue here. I think I think in most cases I think you're right. I think in most cases it's the pools and knowing how much money. But sometimes I do think that there are going to be some cases where if the kid's on the fence about signing anyway, about being professional anyway, maybe the shorter deadline. Uh, you know, gives him le- almost he has less time to think about it and uh, makes a decision, has to make a decision quicker. The team has less time to lobby. And maybe, maybe this is no, one no, of those I, cases where the shorter time frame uh, helps college baseball.
1: You know, maybe. You know, and I think, too, I mean, again, I mean, you know, these guys are 18 years old. And I'm sure on draft yeah. day it was very exciting to, you know, Marlins calling, hey, we'll take you in the third round. This is the number. Will you do it? Hey, I'm a third-round pick of Marlins. You know, you know, we ranked him the 201st best prospect in the draft. He went 80th. Uh, On draft day, signing price seemed real good. And then, you know, I'll give the college programs a lot of credit, too. I mean, these college programs, it's not like they just recruit the guys and sign them in the fall and then, okay, hope to see you in a year. I mean, they recruit these guys. And I'm sure Florida State's been in his ear and pointing out, look, you know, know, here's the benefit to going to Florida State. And, again, I mean, I, I said my oldest son's going to college. You know, we joke all the time, you know, my, you know he goes to a 5,000, you know, student high school, so he wasn't even on the baseball team, but A.J. always asked me, Dad, what would you let me sign for if I was drafted? And and I told him, I said, you know, I was thinking about this, and again, I mean, I've got four kids and they're all going to go to college. And, you know, I told him, I said, you know, you used to hear a million dollars is life-changing money. Well, it's not like you get a million dollars out of high school and you never have to work again. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'll, I, mean I, I hate to think of, you know, after taxes – what would be left of a million dollars would probably put my four kids through school and I'd have nothing left at that point, let alone buying a house or anything else. And, you know, so I've called AJ. I said, you know, be honest, if you were my kid, and I probably have an extreme view on this, I, your signing price for me would be $2.5 million. And to be honest, if anybody was willing to give you $2.5 million, then you probably could get, you know, is a good student. you probably get a full ride to Stanford or Rice or Vanderbilt. Exactly. I'd tell you to go to school and come out in three years. So, you know, there's a lot of benefits going to college. I'm sure Florida State has been very happy to point those out to Ben Deluzio. Um, and you know, I don't think it's so much the CBA. I just think is you know sometimes you get kids who you know at one point signing sounds good, and then the more you think about it, you know maybe college sounds good. So that that one will be interesting. I'm not sure which way that that one's going to wind up if they're going to wind up getting him done.
2: Yeah, that's that's one of the more intriguing ones. The other int- more int- one of the more intriguing teams is the uh, Blue Jays. Let's talk about the Toronto Blue Jays. They have Phil Bickford there at ten. Um, Jimmy, you know, the Blue Jays, just as, a, or, as an organization, are just a much more interesting organization now. Uh, the last two, three years, obviously had a big off season, uh, you know, with acquiring a lot of major league talent. I think you wrote in our major league preview issue, you weren't convinced <laughs> you were not jumping on that bandwagon. Um, you know, those guys were bad in, 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 in Miami with the Marlins. I'm not, just because they became Blue Jays, I'm not convinced they're going to be good as Blue Jays. Was, wasn't that your comment, I believe, in the spring?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, it, we all keep falling for this, you know, hey, the you know last year was the Red Sox spent a lot of money, and the Dodgers spent a lot of money, and the Angels spent a lot of money, you know, adding, uh, you know, I'm not, not second-guessing the move, um, but, you know, everybody just assumes you got to make a trade and it's going to make your team a lot better, and it, it doesn't always work out that way. Right, exactly.
2: Um, but this is a team that uh, has, uh, at uh, the amateur level, they kind of made a lot of waves. Two, I guess it was three years ago when Alex Anthopoulos came on there they hired a lot of scouts they have the mo- the they have the largest uh, uh i guess complement of area scouts in the industry and uh they've taken a, it's a, it's a very different blue jays organization than it was under jp or it's almost like they're back to the way they used to be uh prior to jp and the gillick year. but even this now it's it's a little twist it's a very high risk high reward organization when it comes to the draft gym i, I mean I, I think that's a, the basic way to put it and, uh, you know, Bigford, we we have him 20th on our on the BA 500. He goes 10th overall. Like he throws a, a pretty high uh, pick assignment. And their draft, just because you were drafted in, as their third pick, like Patrick Murphy was, or their fourth pick by Evan Smith, does not mean you are the third or fourth guy on their board. The way the Blue Jays line up their board, Jim, is as, as unique as any club in the game probably. Uh, explain a little bit of how they kind of – how they've run their drafts the last two years, and how that pertains to some of their unsigned players, specifically Bickford, and I guess their 11th rounder Jake Brintz.
1: Yeah, well, last, you know, last year the, the Blue Jays had a bunch of extra picks when, when the free agent compensation rules were a little bit different, and they were super aggressive. They, they they basically put all their money into the first three rounds and all their extra picks. And this year they were they were kind of aggressive too. And, and you know, it's if you look at their draft, they almost all their players, in fact, all their players in their first ten rounds were drafted higher than we had them ranked. Not that our rankings are the be-all and end-all. I mean, Bigford was a guy who had a lot of helium. I don't really think he was a reach at 10. The Royals thought heavily about, about taking him at number 8. Right. And if Phil Bigford had been there at number 34, they might have taken Phil Bigford ahead of Sean Mania, who they paid $3.5 million to. They, they, they were really torn as, as to, between those two guys. Um, but but the interesting thing is, like you mentioned, I mean, the second-best player, according to our rankings, that Toronto drafted was Rowdy Tellez, who went in the 30th round. And he was a guy who I, I think was going to go to the Mariners in the second round. Thought he was going there. And the Mariners, who, who considered Austin Wilson with their first round pick at number 12, get to the second round, and Austin Wilson, the Stanford outfielder, is still there. So they took Austin Wilson, signed him for $1.7 million, which was well, well over pick value. I think pick value was about $1.1. And then I think Telez kind of stuck to his guns as to what he thought he might get from the Mariners, which is why he won the 30th round. The third best player that Toronto drafted, again, according to our rankings, which you know, I'm using for a point of argument. I'm not saying they're, they're the be-all and end-all. Was Jake Brents, who who's a left-hander who, who touched 97. He's a Missouri high school kid who, who pitched in the in Iowa Perfect Game League in the spring. And, you know, we had him as kind of a third-round talent. He went in the 11th round. The fourth-best guy they took was actually their second-round pick, Clinton Holland, who they took with, with the express purpose of signing. You know, at a deep discount anyway. I think that pick was worth about 1.1 $1. $1 million, also. And they had a deal worked out to sign Clinton Holland for six hundred thousand dollars before they took him. You know they were going to shift money around, right. um, and then he had a, a physical an issue come up in his physical with his elbow, so he actually got a little bit less than that. You know, and, and so they just wrapped these guys not in the order necessarily that their talent would dictate. I mean, their third round pick Patrick Murphy, interesting high school kid, a right hander from Arizona, but he even pitched this year, coming back from Tommy John surgery. You right. know, Evan Smith John was a guy you dealt with in Alabama. You know, neither he nor Murphy made our top 500, but Evan Smith he was on the radar, you know, kind of this this raw, projectable kid, but they took him in the fourth round. They, they didn't, by, by, you know, I'm looking here at their bonus list, they didn't pay full pick value for any of the players they drafted in rounds 2 through 10. I mean, pick rounds 8 through 10 were were just pure college seniors. Who signed for three guys for eleven thousand dollars total? They, you know, they just signed Matt Boyd from Oregon State for seventy-five thousand in the sixth round, and he was a sixth-round talent, but a college senior without a ton of to leverage, and he got thirty percent of his pick value. So they've, they've right now built this this big war chest of about one point eight million dollars uh, under budget, you know, compared to what their uh, you know what their signed pick values were in the first ten rounds, and they still have you know, a bunch of work to do. You know, they've got Phil Bickford, who, you know, I think, like I said, I think they'll get him signed. They have Telez, They have, uh, you know, Jake Brents. You know, I mentioned all three of those guys. I think those are their primary targets. But I also think they're going to be able to go out, and, and, you know, I don't know how much money they're going to have left over, but I think they might try to make a run at at some guys like like Tanner Cable, who's a right-hander from northwest Mississippi, or, or Dane Dunning, who's a high school. Right-hander from Florida, or Josh Sawyer, high school lefty from Texas. You know, depending on what they can get guys signed for, you know, the the, the Blue Jays are probably going to be the the most active team. You know, they they might sign another six, seven, eight players here here between now and Friday.
2: It'll be fascinating. I know I follow Dunning on Twitter. I mean, he tweeted about him a couple weeks ago that he was. Actually, I think I may have unfollowed him after this. <laughs> I was following him <laughs> during the draft. But he tweeted like, you know, going to Gainesville. You know, he's a Florida recruit. Um, that kind of thing. So. They're they're a team that could break some college's hearts, basically. Um, And it was the way it's sounding. And and I'll admit, Evan Smith definitely took me for a a loop on on draft day uh, in the fourth round. Um, Probably should have been in the BA 500 just from a projection standpoint, but uh, definitely one of the more raw guys. And it's just fascinating. I don't think, that. and this is, I guess, to me, Jim, every time that Major League Baseball overhauls its draft rules, uh, there are always unintended consequences, and no, really, we haven't seen anyone find the loophole. I don't even know if there is a real big loophole in these draft rules for the superstar player, for the Strasburg or Harper who comes along, and I don't think there's been a Strasburg or Harper, but you know, next year we might be talking about you know, uh, Carlos Rodon this way, uh, or Tyler Kolick, the high school kid out of Texas. You know, When you have a high school kid throwing 98, 99 miles an hour, that's kind of a special case when you have a guy like Rodon, who's at his best, has been as good, and I, I think could have been the number one overall pick in either. He, in my mind, he would have been the number one talent in either of the last two drafts had he been eligible. So that's a, you know, that could be a quote-unquote special talent. Um, you know, we'll see if if you ever find a loophole that way. But I have to imagine that this is an unintended consequence that no one in the commissioner's office or the union thought that teams would be using. You know, seven, eight, nine, or last year the the Blue Jays in the fourth round taking uh, college seniors that way and having their second and third and fourth best players on their board being guys taking the 11th and 30th in those kind of rounds. I mean, I don't think it necessarily is bad for the draft, but it's certainly unusual to see a draft board fall like that. It's, it's, it's a, I, yeah. I don't think anybody saw this happening.
1: No, you're right. It's goofy. You know, and because of the way the rules work, too, you know, the bonus pool is the sum of your assigned values for your picks in the first ten rounds. And after that, you know, for rounds 11 through 40, you can sign a guy for $100,000 and doesn't count anything towards your pool, but anything over that $100,000 does. And what it does, if you take a guy who you, you, you suspect might be a difficult sign, let's say Jake Brents in the 11th round or Rowdy Tellez in the 30th round, it basically gives you a free $100,000. If I sign right. Jake Brents, and I'm not saying he's going to get a million dollars, I'll just pick around. there. If I sign Jake Brents for a million dollars, I do that in the first 10 rounds, a million dollars counts against my pool. If I do it in round eleven, only nine hundred thousand counts against the pool. The other benefit is if I don't sign a guy in the first ten rounds, his pool money disappears. So let's say I took Jake Brents on the Blue Jays, and I take Jake, Jake Brents with my third pick. You know, he's the third best player. I'm going to take my third pick, and that comes in you know, the third round. That's a six hundred fifty thousand dollar pick value. If I don't sign him, I lose six hundred fifty thousand dollars out of my pool that you know I just I can't apply to somebody else. If I don't sign him in the 11th round, I don't lose anything out of my pool. So, you know, you you have to have the player get to you. You know, you could get too cute and hope a guy falls out of the first 10 rounds, and then if he doesn't, you know, you don't get a chance to sign him. But there is some strategy to it, and and I think it's safe to say, I mean, I I think that there's no great loophole to come up with extra money or to to game the system to get you know to pay to get a guy you wouldn't otherwise and and I even think you know like you were alluding to with with Rodon you know versus Strasburg and Harper I think when you get that super elite draft guy that everybody loves with this system there, there's no benefit to falling you know you, you know the Yankees might have more money than anybody you know in in the real world but in the draft pool you know the Yankees are going to be picking you know in the twenties they're going to have like a five million dollar draft pool most years they aren't going to have three extra picks like they did this year or two extra picks you know, there's no point in trying to make my client fall to the Yankees at 20 because they're not going to be able to pay him as much. Exactly. I you know, Carlos <laughs> Rodon, even even if, if and I'm and I'm not saying he'll do this, but let's say Carlos Rodon comes out and says, hey, I'm better than Yasiel Puig. I've got to have $45 million, blah, 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 or I'm not signing. I'm going to Japan, and I'll, <laughs> I'll do some convoluted stuff to try to become a free agent. I, I still, if I'm picking 1-1 next year, which I think is still the Astros as of today, right? Um, I believe so. So let's say I'm the Astros, and Carlos Rodon can sell that, and you know next year that that if the the picks go up by the same amount, that that number one pick will probably be worth 8.5 million dollars. I'm still taking Carlos Rodon. Because a, if he's one of these, you know, once every five years types of talent, the worst thing that's going to happen is I'll get the, I'll, I'll get a compensation ticket number two next year. But I'm going to take my shot at Carlos Corton because I know I can pay him more than anybody else. Right. So, right. um th- th- There are no great loopholes to, you know, you know. But, but you're right in terms of these these seniors. That is an unintended consequence, and I agree with you. I don't think it, it ruins the draft. I think it's kind of goofy. I, I wish you just drafted right. players based on talent. But and the thing is too, just so the public knows. It's not like Joe Senior, you know, is, is sitting around on draft day thinking you know he's going in the thirtieth round. and He just hopes he gets a shot, and then you know the Blue Jays take him in the eighth round. Yeah, and he's like, oh my God, I'm pumped. I'm you know, and then they're like, what? I'm only getting five thousand dollars. I mean, again, the team's telling the player, look, we need to save money. We like you. We're taking the eighth round. We're giving you five thousand dollars. Will you sign? And if your answer isn't yes, they'll, they'll find another guy.
2: Yeah, we wrote that last year uh, with the Blue Jays with Tucker Donahue, and also we we'll talked to a Cardinals. Uh, Senior draft, Kyle Bearclaw. If you want to find that story at BaseballAmerica.com, dot com, just to, just to type in Kyle Bearclaw. Not a lot of references to Kyle Bearclaw on there. Uh, we we don't have our our podcasts. Uh, <laughs> we don't have those searchable at BaseballAmerica.com dot com for all my random Kyle Bearclaw mentions over his four years at uh, I believe it was St. Mary's. I was a Kyle Bearclaw guy, but Tucker Donahue said exactly that last year to me, and and Kyle did as well. Uh, uh, and Tucker was a fourth round pick, and he said. I just wanted it you know, I'll always I'll be able to put on my tombstone if I want to. Here's Ky here's Tucker Donahue who was a fourth round pick of the Blue Jays and it won't sign I sign it won't say I signed for five thousand dollars, it'll say I was a fourth round pick. So that mattered to him and it matters to other college seniors and uh that that's really kind of been the only loophole really that, that uh teams have found.
1: Um Right and, so, and you know the thing is too, I was gonna say too, the other benefit for you the player is to go that high as a college senior, even if you're one of these $5,000 discount guys, an area scout had to go to bat for you. No area right. scout is going to put his name on a guy they don't like when, when teams say, hey, who can we get in the eighth round for $5,000 who might be a guy? You know, you, you know, To go that high, there's an area scout in that organization that said, you know what, I really like this kid, and he's got great makeup. And maybe he's you know not a top prospect, but he's going to work hard, and you know I think there's a shot. So again, you know it, there, there's a benefit to the player to go that high, even if you're not getting a high bonus. You know, they're not getting any less than they would have gotten in the 30th round. But like you said, you know, you get the status of hey this guy's a fourth round pick, even if it's kind of convoluted. But you know that somebody in that organization did believe in you enough to say hey you know if we're looking for a discount guy, here's a good one.
2: Well, Jim, we talked about the Blue Jays and how they have kind of a war chest to work with this week. We expect them to be one of the more active teams. There's three other teams that have pretty significant amounts of money left to spend. We uh, just mentioned the Astros, the Red Sox, and the Rockies. Why don't we touch on the on the Astros first? And uh, obviously, again, picked uh, number one overall each of the last two years. Right now they're in a tight race for, to go number one overall again uh, next year. But the Astros, Jim, they have a lot of money, and they've signed. They have a lot of money left in their pool, what, a little bit over a million dollars.
1: Is that right? Yeah, you know they have a million, but because their pool is so high, it's almost twelve million dollars. They can go almost another six million. I mean, not six million, six hundred. Right. Six six hundred thousand is I'm trying to say because they have a twelve million pool. They can go another six hundred thousand dollars over their pool without losing a pick. So they really have about one point six million dollars to play with here, which isn't so much. You know, this is one of the benefits of, of if you have a bad record, which the Astros obviously have the last couple of years. You know, they took Mark Appel. They gave Mark Appel more money as a college senior than the three highest paid college seniors in draft history combined had gotten. He got 6.35 million, but because they set the pick values so high for the first 3 or 4 picks to give those teams an advantage, they saved about a million and a half dollars on Mark Appel, right. Which is why they have so much money to spend. They gave 610,000 to their 10th rounder and, and they still have, you know, they, they could spend another 1.6 million dollars on this draft if they if they see fit. So, but
2: at, at the same time, it's not Completely obvious where they're going to spend this money. Do you expect them to spend one point six, one almost one point seven million dollars? Um, and if so, upon whom? Who are their primary targets that they would? Have I don't
1: right think. They, I don't think they'll necessarily spend that. I think. The two guys, I think, are their primary. I mean, the thing is, I mean, I'm looking here at the draft list. They've only five, six, seven. There's only nine guys they haven't signed. They they don't even have that many guys to sign. Um, But I I think their two primary targets are are Devontae German, who's a raw. I wouldn't call him project. He's like a beast. He's like 6'5", 240. He's already up to 93. You could see more velocity coming. He's their 11th rounder. I think he's one of their targets, and I think their other primary target is a Canadian shortstop. Um, named Daniel Panero, who's going to Virginia, um, who I think Connor Glassy did our Canada coverage and wrote he'd have to go in the top five rounds to pass on his commitment to Virginia. Well, I, I think they can pay both those guys. I mean, they, they can easily pay both those guys. I don't know their exact asking price, but, I mean, they have the money to get those guys done. I think the other interesting thing to consider... And, and I will give credit. Not I don't remember exactly who brought this up, but somebody brought this up to Twitter on me last night, and I was like, uh, you know, that's a good point. You know, you could sign non-drafted free agents. Right. Are essentially the same as guys who weren't drafted. Or I mean, who were drafted after the tenth round. Like, if I take a guy, anybody who's not drafted, who's eligible for the draft, call, you know, he, I can sign those guys for a hundred thousand dollars at no cost to my pool. Now, if I sign a guy for over that, it does count against my pool. And we saw last year the one team that, that kind of made the move along those lines was uh, the Diamondbacks, or they made the biggest move. They, they signed Felipe Perez, who we had ranked among the top 100 prospects in the draft, but a UCLA commitment and his price tag led to him not being drafted. He signed for $400,000. So anyway, um, I have a point to all this. There was a guy, <laughs> and I can't remember who it was on Twitter last night, uh, who, who, who mentioned to me... You know, could the Astros go after a non-drafted free agent, and uh, and actually it was Street J L. Street. I'll give him credit. Street J L. on Twitter. Is that, you know, on, is that Justin Street or Houston. It's street? not. It's a guy named Lee Street who, uh, <laughs> according kidding. to his bio, is a lawyer in Portland, Oregon, who who loves the Astros. Um, okay. And he said, could they go after a non-drafted free agent? And, and yes, that's what they could do. I don't know in particular if they're targeting anybody, but if the Astros were determined. To spend the full 1.6, you know, you could sign you know, Devontae German and, and Panero, and I don't know how much that'll cost. You'll still have a significant amount of money left over, and yeah, you, you probably could go get a non-drafted free agent. You know, they might have 500 or 800 thousand dollars left over.
2: Uh, are there any obvious? I I just was looking at it last night. I didn't see any obvious NDFA's who you know could be in this in this mix. Did you see any obvious targets or? <laughs>
1: Um, you know, I, I I haven't looked because most, you know, it's, I I looked at one point and I don't have the list in front of me. I tried to look and see okay, the highest unsigned guys on the BA 500, and a lot of times this comes down to, uh, you know, just a case of you don't know what they're signability. And you know, there's a couple Texas kids who I wrote up, you know, Tacchini, who's a right-handed pitcher, and Ryan Sluter who's an athletic outfielder. There's also a catcher from Texas named uh, Tres Pereira. Um, you know, all those guys are are, are interesting. You know, I have I, I'd be lying if I told you I knew what those guys wanted, right. or you know, if the Astros have been in contact with them. But I mean, there are guys who, you know, I mean, I, you know, again, I don't know specifically, but I mean, I think those guys, some of those guys, might be signable for five hundred or or, or seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and you know, and you could get them. You know, it's just a matter, you know, of, of making. You know, Keegan Thompson was the guy you wrote up, John. Right. Um. And he was the other guy. Those were the four guys I think in the top 200 who, who I noticed high school guys who who weren't drafted. So
2: I know, just, they, I just was thinking to myself, wait a minute, how did I miss Keegan Thompson? That's an obvious guy who was not drafted, who would right, I have, but, but I you have know,
1: picked on him last night. But but the thing is with Keegan Thompson, as you wrote. And this is a guy who started with the U.S. you know youth team, but I mean the thinking was it was going to take first-round money to sign Keegan Thompson. Well, if that's true, yeah, you know, I don't know if they're going to give him a million and a half dollars. So I guess the answer to that would be no. But so anyway, I mean yes, there are guys, there are guys out there who uh, who haven't been drafted. You know how signable they are. You know I I don't really know, but there, but there are a lot of high school players out there. Well, it's
2: uh. So that's the Astros' approach, and it's going to be—you know—it'll be interesting to see uh, what Houston does. It just—I remember it struck me as when they got a Pell that like they were so far under, and they'd already dra- signed most of their other first ten-round picks, and they drafted. It was a pretty college-heavy draft uh, performance by the Astros. I just didn't see where they were going to be able to spend all their money, and uh, looks like it might—it may be difficult. The Red yeah, you know, and
1: I was gonna Go say, John, the guy they wanted—I mean, the guy they really wanted, I think, was Sean Manaya, That was yep. my indication that they were hoping to get Sean Manaya with the top pick in the second round. You know, and I wrote this, you know, and uh, I'll to my own horror here—I was telling Astros fans all oh. year—Mark <laughs> Capel's going to have leverage. He's not signing for 4.8 million dollars like Carlos Correa. Right. He's going to get paid. But because the Astra you know, that first pick was valued at about 7.8 million dollars, and the Astros' second pick was valued at 1.4, that's 9.2. Like I said, they could have gone an extra 600,000 dollars over their bonus pool without losing a pick. That would be 9.8. You know, that, that would have fit. They could have signed Mark Appel for 6.3 or 6.35, and Shama right around. which is what the Royals gave him at 34, and they could afford those guys. And I think that's who they wanted. And you looked, you could see what happened. You know, when you're watching the draft, when their second round pick came around, there just aren't a lot of expensive guys to sign this year. The the draft wasn't that deep. There aren't that many guys who you're going to give. There are a few guys out there like Ryan Bolton, Kevin Biggio, and Connor Jones, who I'm sure you know it would probably take at least two million dollars to sign, and they're not going to get that. But you know, I think Shamanai was our guy, and when he was gone, there wasn't really another guy who an obvious guy to take like Lance McCullers was last year in the sandwich round, and they took Andrew Thurman from UC Irvine, whom I like, but Andrew, Thur- Andrew Thurman was a straight-up, full-pick value college junior. It wasn't like he was a tough sign, right. and like you said, I, I, I agree with you. I don't necessarily think they can spend all their money. I mean, you can always spend the money. I mean, you can find somebody to take the money, but I don't know if they're going to be able to spend $1.6 million unless they go heavily into some non-drafted free agents.
2: Yep, that's how it strikes me. You mentioned Ryan Bolt. The Red Sox drafted Ryan Bolt, and the Red Sox are a team that's under their uh, cap. By, uh, if they go over and pay some tax, roughly a million, what one point one million? Uh, is that what they have left, Jim? Right around that?
1: Yeah, the the Red Sox right now have three hundred seventy five, and they could probably go another two fifty. Yeah, so it's about it's about one point one, one point two. I mean, they still haven't signed their fourth round pick, Miles right. Smith. So that could affect a little bit in terms of what they can go over. And obviously if they signed him you – know, with Miles Smith, just real quickly, they thought they knew what it was going to take to sign him. I think the Mets thought they knew what it was going to take to sign Miles Smith last year out of junior college. And in both cases, that number didn't work. So I don't know if that was for the full pick value or less. But there, there, there's a little wiggle room there depending on what they get Miles Smith done if they get him signed between now and Friday.
2: I guess my, my, my point is there are more obvious targets for Boston than there are for Houston. I mean, besides Miles Smith – Even after the first 10 rounds, you have Jordan Sheffield, who came into the year, uh, ranked very highly. He was not in our first iteration of the top 200 because I overreacted to his Tommy John surgery and dropped him out when we did the BA 500, put him back in there at 88. Um, You know, very, I I think a heart, he and Ryan Bolt are are two very similar situations for me, Jim, because they were both injured all spring and they would have been uh, potential first round talents who both had pretty significant injuries. Um and missed basically the entire spring. I, mean, I think they both played one or two games. Well, Bolt played one game, right?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, Bolt, because the weather was so bad in Minnesota. Right. <laughs> they, they, their season was delayed for a while. So the season-opening doubleheader, he, he, he injured the meniscus in his knee in the first game. And then when he was running for ball in the second game, he just went down like he was shot and, and had some minor surgery. <laughs> uh-uh. I mean, he did. I mean, it's like every scout who had you know Minnesota was looking forward to seeing Ryan Bold, and then he gets injured the first day. But, yeah, he, he barely played. And, uh, you know, with, with him, I don't think Ryan Bolt's signable. I think he's – not that this necessarily means it. He's already said publicly he's definitely going to Nebraska. He went up to Fenway for a recruiting visit. and They just don't have the money to sign him. His asking price before the draft was $2.5 million, which, again, right. those aren't always set in stone. But he's not going to sign for 1.3 million. You know, roughly right now, the Red Sox for a guy after the 10th round can probably go to about 1.2, 1.3. I think Sheffield's signable for in that area. What I guess the Red Sox have to decide is, do we have all that money into Jordan Sheffield, who, like you said, you know, probably was a first-round pick before he had Tommy John surgery, and and I think teams, as we talked, you know, it's not a guaranteed bounce back from Tommy John. But, but teams feel pretty good that guys are going to come back from Tommy John. Um, you know, we, I think we had him, what, John? I want to say the seventh-best high school prospect in the draft coming into the year. I mean, this guy Correct. was really good. So basically, I think with the Red Sox, regardless of what they do with Miles Smith, and, and I don't have a great feel whether they're actually going to get him signed, is either you give all your overage to Jordan Sheffield, and, and I could see a case being made for that because if you think he's going to come back, you're stealing the first-round talent in the 13th round. Or do you maybe divide that up among a couple players? You know, Derek Burkhamper is a projectable Iowa high school kid um, who might be a guy. Uh, Nick Longy is a guy who didn't have a great spring, but some guys like him, high school outfielder from Florida. He's a Um, Mark
2: Carrion type. He's a right-handed batter, left-handed thrower. Just kind of a tougher profile, you know, good player who I think if he goes – he's an LSU recruit. And uh, if memory serves, I'm pretty sure that – I don't have a scouting report in front of me, but – yeah, if if that guy goes to school, Nick Longhi would be a really uh, potentially very impactful college baseball player because he's also a, a left-handed pitcher with right-handed power. So you know, he, he's a split camp kind of guy, and most of the guys I talked to didn't love him this spring because he's a tougher profile. But he's a guy who, if he goes to college, you could see him having a really b- being impactful as a freshman because he has some present power and has the ability to, you know, to be a lefty reliever at least at the start.
1: Right, you know, and they got you know, they got Trevor Morrison who's a high school shortstop from Washington, Matthew Face, who's a high school catcher from New Jersey. So anyway, the Red Sox have a bunch of ways that they're gonna go. And the Red Sox we've talked about many times, I think were the most aggressive high revenue team under the previous rules. I mean they they spent and spent and spent, even though they weren't signing a guy for six million dollars at the top of the because they weren't picking that high. Um so anyway, I think the Red Sox are definitely gonna use their overage uh, it, it's just a case: Do you give it all to Sheffield, or do you maybe spread it among two or three different guys?
2: And uh, and, and Sheffield again, uh, you mentioned the Tommy John. The other kind of complicating factor to me is that he is a—he's not just a high school right hander coming off Tommy John surgery with a Vanderbilt commitment. He's also six foot. I think he's listed as six foot. I mean, he's just not a big guy, you know. So I mean, that is a complicating factor for me. I think you'd feel better spending that kind of money on him if he were six two. 6'3", as opposed to 5'11", foot. That's all. it so, doesn't, doesn't discount him as a prospect, but I, I think it's another uh, little factor there. So um, then the other team, I guess, Jim, that has some money to spend, and maybe we should probably uh, end with this, is the Rockies. And the Rockies, uh, In I, it feels like this is a little bit more of a high school heavy class, by Rocky standards anyway. They've been one of the more college-heavy clubs. Um, but, again, this is a club that signed every pick through the first 19 rounds. Where could uh, – if, if Colorado, they, they have some money to spend, uh, could they make a run at Kyle Serrano? Uh, I don't expect that to happen, but who could they make a
1: run at after uh, the first 10 rounds? Yeah, you know, and their money basically came from they signed the number three pick, Jonathan Gray, for $4.8 million. And again, I was talking about how the, the first yeah. four picks have very high pick values. His pick was worth 5.6. That gave him an $800,000 surplus. And right now they have about a $500,000 surplus, and they could add another $500,000 on top of that if they're willing to pay tax. I don't think a million dollars is going to get Kyle Serrano done. Um, I really don't. Um, I think the guys that they might go get would be, you know, among them Wesley Jones, who's a Georgia high school shortstop. Um, you know, maybe they make a run at Ronnie Gideon, who's a, who's a Texas high school third baseman. Then there's a real interesting uh, projectable. I, I think every p- high school pitcher from Colorado has to be described as projectable. For some reason, they right. all seem like they're you – know, this guy's 6'7", 220. Alec Hansen's a the guy they can make a run at. Yeah, he sounds took, fascinating. Then they took Rex Brothers, little brother, Hunter Brothers. Uh, I just probably set a record for saying brother uh, most times in one sentence. Brother. Um, and uh, was well, the anyway, year of
2: hunter. We had two or – well, we have
1: three hunters drafted in the first round, Hunter Harvey. Hunter Renfro, Hunter, Renfro. Know, Hunter Green didn't go in the first round. He went in the second round. But anyway, um, but yes, they have a number of targets there. And uh, and actually, I just I'm looking at our scoreboard of of what team you know, we have a great page at Baseball America. Uh, if you go to our draft page, you, you, can, you can go to our draft database. You can see the draft pool spinning by team. I'm just going to throw out a couple other names. You, Oakland it has the fifth most money to spend right now. They saved a little bit when, when Dylan Overton failed his fiscal needs Tommy John, their second-round pick. They saved about $400,000. I think we're going to see um, them sign a Hawaii, has a high school catcher named Ilana Akal, a uh, 20th-round pick. I think he's going to get done. The Angels had the lowest bonus pool of of any team. Oh, I'm sorry, second <laughs> lowest bonus pool of any team. Um, and, and you have gone extremely I guess I'll say the word cheap. They, they, they've even saved money despite having less than thirty million dollars in their bonus pool. They've only spent two point six. That's amazing. I think, I think the guy they're trying to get is a high school right-hander from Texas named Blake Goins, who, who I think they could sign with pretty much their overage. Uh, Cleveland, you know, has a little bit of money. I, it sounds it sounds like Adam Plutko, the, UC, one of the UCLA aces is off the College World Series championship team. That they might get Adam Plutko done. Uh, you know, he was their 11th round pick. I, I think we're going to see him get signed.
2: And of course, Putko was kind of busy. <laughs> he was he was occupied, um, and also probably a little bit miffed that he um, and that he went in the eleventh round. Um, they may have it seems like they the, all those teams that passed on him in the first ten rounds did uh, did UCLA a favor because Adam Putko uh, was outstanding in the postseason, and I think he had a little extra motivation by being passed over in those first ten rounds. And it uh, wouldn't shock me if they made a run at Heath Quinn either, Jim. Uh, there in the twelfth round, I know there was another split camp guy, but a high school kid out of a uh, out of Alabama, I think they. You know, it sounds like they expect Sanford expects to get him into campus, but it wouldn't wouldn't shock me um, if that was a guy who who a team made a run out. But I do, uh, I definitely recommend uh, if you go to the Baseball America MLB Draft Database page. Um, pretty easy to find. It's on our quick quick hits quick clicks in the upper right hand corner of the homepage. You line up all the teams. See the draft pool, setting by team. You can click to see all unsigned draftees. And really just kind of to bring things back around, Jim. It is really amazing to see, uh, just how few unsigned picks there are, uh, early on. We touched real quick, uh, before we finished. We touched on Aaron Judge before, um, just to satisfy all those Yankees, uh, fans. Do you see Judge, uh, any chance you see that guy not signing? he just, he's just going to get that, or do you think he's going to get as much as he can get from the Yankees, basically?
1: Yeah, I mean, <sighs> I always am more optimistic, but really, you know, I, I just don't see him turning down 1.7 million dollars in the end. You know, I might, I might be wrong, but no, I think he'll, you know, I think at this point he'll go to the end, see if he can get more in the slot. The Yankees will probably hold firm him to slot, and we'll see what happens. And just, I'm going to run through. since There's so few guys, and we went through everybody in the first four rounds. There's eight guys unsigned in the first four rounds. There's eight other unsigned guys in rounds five through ten. I'm going to run through here real quick. Sure. Ben Wetzler with the Phillies. I think he's going to sign. Um, Jason Monda, the sixth round pick of the Phillies, has said a while back he's not going to sign. He's going back to, back to school. Outfielder. Um, the Rays are having trouble. Stephen Woods, their sixth round pick, um, who was not a BA 500 guy, I think they felt like they knew what it was going to take to sign him, and that's not getting it done. Um, I do think the Giants will sign Nick Vander out of uh, UCLA. Um, Pirates are still negotiating with Buddy Borden. Uh, the Orioles have Drew Dosh, who probably would have been a fourth-round pick or so, but he tore the ACL in his knee on a – I think he hit the bag funny on a play at first base. I think that's just a case where – my guess is Dosh will probably sign, but they're waiting to see how much money the Orioles are going to have left over at the end and try to get a little over slot. Right now they're about 200 under slot and could go another 300. Uh, so I, his, his pick value in the seventh round is about $164,000, yeah. and I think he'll get more than that, but he'll sign. Um, The Twins in the eighth round took Dustin DeMuth, the third baseman on Indiana's College World Series team. And they actually took, uh, I think in the 26th round, Indiana's closer, Ryan Halstead. Yeah. And I know they felt like they had commitments from both players as to what they were going to sign for and Indiana's done a good job re-recruiting those guys. I don't think either one of those guys is going to sign. And then the last guy in, in, in the top ten rounds is Cleveland's tenth-round pick, Ross Kivett, the, the second baseman on Kansas State, surprising uh, super regional team this year, has said he's going back to school. I don't think that's necessarily 100% a lock, but, the, but they want, might wind up not getting Ross Kivett done. So just counting this up in my head, I think there's a chance that you know, we might see by the time the deadline's done, there may not be more than five guys who don't sign out of the first ten rounds.
2: That's really amazing, Jim. And that, to me, um, for all the little things that are different about these draft rules that we may may like, may not like, ultimately that's a that's a win for the industry. It feels like, and that's a, that these, these rules, and I think you have to say, are doing what they were intended to do, which is make this again take out some of the drama and make it easier for clubs to sign players, easier for players to know what it will take for them to sign and, and to get out and get and, and uh, get actual. Professional baseball experience sooner, so it feels like the rules, whether we like them or don't like them, are doing what they were intended to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you, man. I, mean, I think uh, you
2: and I both agree the better system probably would just be. Uh, it's nice to have a deadline, but spend what you want to spend. Spend what you think. You know, give the teams, um, you know, the capitalistic thing to do is have as free a market as it can be, and let the teams spend what they want to spend and decide what they want to spend on on these players. That's not what MLB has chosen to do. So these rules are kind of, you know, I do think this system is better than what we had from 2007 to 2011.
1: No, I agree. And what I was gonna say too is, I mean, I, I too would be for the free market, and not just, you know, as a, as a capitalist. I'm not but even. I, I, think, know, I won't even say I'm a capitalist. Yeah, I know. But I was gonna say I think the draft. There's no doubt. I think in anybody's mind, it's the the the. I guess you get more bang for your buck when you're trying to build a team. But if I'm a small revenue team, I can. It's easy for me to spend $15 million on the draft rather than spending $150 million on my major league team. I can spend the $15 million on the draft and try to rebuild that way. Um, but, yeah, the, the reason this system is better is instead of having these slots which were unilaterally uh, decided by MLB, they really didn't ever change, and they were basically 2006 slots in and 2011, and nobody took them seriously. You have these pick values that were negotiated by both sides. So they're more realistic. They're reflective of market value. You don't have to pretend guys haven't signed when they have just because they got extra money. <laughs> they, are, they have given the teams – I mean, uh, face it, the reason we have a draft is to keep bonuses down because these yep. guys get a ton more money as free agents. But you know, when MLB talks about, oh, you know, the draft, competitive balance, and this and that – One of the things they did do is by giving so much money to the three or four teams at the top of the draft, those top three or four picks in the draft, it gives them a lot more money to play with. So while it's not easy being an Astros fan because the team has been so bad the last couple of years, the Astros have had so much money to spend on the draft that theoretically in a few years that should help them to get back on top. So I, I do think this system is definitely playing out better than the old informal system with the old CBA. Me too. It's uh, it, it
2: does make uh, we, we, I don't miss the deadline either, as far as the middle middle of August midnight crazy flood of signings, but I think our I think our web traffic misses it, and uh, I think there are some fans who miss that aspect. Of the you know the drama was pretty fun.
1: Uh, we'll have to face it. it. It was stressful, but it was kind of fun too. So it was fun except for when our site would often crash right before the deadline, and we'd be like, how are we? Well, you know. I still remember John Manuel, Voice of Reason, when we, our, our first year we had the Twitter account at Baseball America, the year Strasburg was 1-1. And, you, know, you, you calmly said, hey, we could post these on Twitter. And then, then we, we just posted our tweets back on the website when the, when the website came back up. But, yeah, it's, it, was, it was very odd last year. You know, the other thing is, too, instead of having it at midnight, it's now at 5 p.m. Eastern, yep. so we don't have to stay up all night. And in the case of Pedro Alvarez and Eric Hosmer, you know, at 12.30 that evening or the next morning, we are wondering, did these guys even sign? But, yeah, last year, I mean, the only real drama toward the end was, okay, did Kevin Gossman sign? And we all knew he would, but, you know, what exactly did he get? But right. I have a feeling on Friday we may have, you know, 10 guys in the first 10 rounds unsigned going into Friday. I, I don't think there's going to be much drama at all. i got to say the only, uh, the only reason that
2: that stands out to you, I think, in retrospect from 2009 – is that I was the calm one. <laughs> that's, that's why, yes, yes. <laughs> that's why it's so unique. So, um, great stuff, Jim. Uh, fun, fun podcasting with you. My first podcast in a while. So, um, it was great seeing you in Omaha. Good running into you there. Your next trip is the AAA All Star Game. Uh, head to Reno. What a week from today.
1: Uh, yeah, I think it is. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a week from a week from Tuesday. And actually, there's so little drama. I will be active and online, but I'm picking my daughter up at camp this weekend, so I will be I will be doing my draft deadline coverage, the Big Friday coverage from Wisconsin, coverage from Traverse City, Michigan. I I will be at a hotel that has Wi-Fi. I've already checked this out. We're getting up at four in the morning, so we can be there by noon, and I will be. Be good to go, but uh, I, I will be taking my my draft signing deadline coverage for the final day to, On the to road. Traverse City, Michigan, uh, up up in northern Michigan. Are you gonna be uh, Are you gonna be doing that? Uh, isn't that
2: where uh, Dave Kylitz
1: lives? I believe it is. You could do that from you Dave. Kylitz. he lives. He lives near Interlochen, which is the camp my daughter is at right now. My youngest daughter, and we actually, when I ran into him in Omaha, I, I it was he was asking which of my family members had made the trip to Omaha this year. And I, realized, I made the, the Michigan connection, and I, and I mentioned I said, you probably know what interlocking is, and he talked about how he and his wife go and see concerts there uh, all the time.
2: Well, now I'm going to take a quick diversion, Jim, because I, I do want to ask you this.
1: Maybe I'll, we You can take it off the podcast if you
2: want, but tell me, tell me the story about Dave College. Who was ABCA president before him? Wasn't that when Ron Polk, did he quit for a week as coach of Mississippi State to go try to run the ABCA and fight the NCAA, or did he just talk about quitting? Because Dave Kylis announced his retirement to me in a letter, and I mean, I, I, I wrote about it on Friday, and I'm, I'm gonna miss Dave. is a great guy. Whether you think he did great things for college baseball or not, you know, I know there are actually some people out there who think he didn't, but I they think that he, you know, that he uh, is some kind of commissioner for college baseball and has all this power, and he really doesn't. But he he is influential. He's basically the lobbyist for college baseball with the NCA, and in that capacity, I feel he did a tremendous job. But um, they, that, that post, there was some contention before his 20-year tenure there began, wasn't there?
1: Yeah, it's like and I'm getting old now. I, I know I, it's I, ancient I, I don't, history. It's 19 years ago. Yeah, you know, and I guess Dave's, I think, executive director. Correct. Well, I don't know well, what kind well, of, I of like for. And I think before, before him was Dick Bergquist, and before him was Jerry Miles, and that's kind of my tenure uh, since I've been at Baseball America. Ron, because Ron, <laughs> I don't think anybody – I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this. I don't think was an assistant like
2: coach for the for who now? He's an assistant at Wareham
1: nothing, in the Cape. Yeah, and it's the Cape. He's like a volunteer assistant in both places. But Ron hated what Title IX did to college baseball. I guess is the kindest way of putting it.
0: So That's to make accurate a
1: point, to make a point, he was going. To, he he did he did resign his job at Mississippi State, and he was going to work with the ABCA. He wasn't going to be present, but work with the ABCA to try to stem the tides of these cutbacks. And I remember telling him at the time, because I was still coming college baseball, Ron, I don't think the NCAA cares. <laughs> don't do this. You're going to miss coaching. And I don't think it's going to work. And he did it. And he got terribly bored after a year. I think he wound up working with USA Baseball for a while. And then he actually wound up coaching my alma mater, Georgia. Um, for a couple of years before he went back to Mississippi State. But you know, he so wanted to get back into coaching. John, I've told you this story that when the job came open after, after, Georgia, after Steve Weber left Georgia after winning the national championship and then the program took a downturn, they hired Robert Sapp. Despite, yep. and I won't go into this, belabor this story, which you've heard me tell many times, despite my, my telling Georgia that the guy you want to hire is Ray Tanner, which I feel is, I was correct on, but they, South Carolina got to him first. So they hired Robert Sapp, and that didn't work out. So they were hiring another coach. Ron Polk called Vince Dooley and said, I want the job. I, I, I miss coaching. Please hire me. I wanna I wanna be George's coach. And the story I've always heard is that Vince Dooley said, Well, what you know, Vince was the longtime football coach and athletic director George said, so What would you know, what would your salary expectation be? And Ron told him, and Vince said, Well, Ron, we can't pay you that. We have to pay you at least what we were paying Robert Sapp. I mean, Ron was so <laughs> bored, yeah. Uh, yeah, that he that he missed coaching. They want to get back into it. So that that was a story. You know, Ron Ron did leave Mississippi State to show the NCAA how wrong they were treating college baseball, but the NCAA didn't really care. No, I mean, well,
2: I don't think they really cared. I don't, I don't think they really had a choice. I think they lost well, that, a lawsuit, didn't they? Well, yeah, I mean,
1: here, here here's my, my two cents on Title IX. I'll, I'll probably get a call from Ron if he listens to this podcast. But especially now that I have two daughters. Do you really think Ron Polk, who doesn't use a computer and
2: uses a you know manual typewriter, knows how to, use a, well, knows maybe, knows maybe, how to listen to a maybe podcast, Cooper Jim?
1: Maybe, maybe Cooper Ferris is hooking him up on iTunes or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the, the wear him coach. But anyway, with Title IX, my point, I have two daughters. You know, I mean – Title IX was legislation, I believe, it was passed in 1972 or 70. Yep. And basically, the colleges ignored it for about 10 or 15 years. Correct. And had they implemented what they were supposed to implement back in the 70s, I think it would have been a lot less difficult than what they had to do to make up for it after they got sued 15 years after the fact. You know, they had you had you just, you know achieved the balance you were supposed to have between the equity between men's and women's athletics when Title IX first was passed, I think it would have been a lot smoother sailing. And unfortunately what happened for baseball was because that didn't happen and you had to you know, have the right proportions and you had to cut sports. You know, Baseball has a high body count. I think it's, what, 35 got, 35 athletes, not 35 scholarships. Right. But, you know, if you're, you know and, and you also run into the difficulty that mo- you know, no college I know of has women's football. So if your college has a football team, you already have a lot more male athletes just from football. And that because baseball, I think, is the second highest body count in terms of right. men's athletics right. for a lot of schools that became one of the easiest ways or the first step to try to get that balance back in wax.
2: Of course of the, that thirty five man roster that was not that cap only happened in the last five years. Before that, I mean that was one of coach Coach Polk's big uh, arguments, you know, a few years back when the NCAA instituted a thirty five man roster limit, you know, twenty seven players who uh for your travel roster and I think twenty seven of those had to be on scholarship. Um, you know, that was, that's why, uh, Polky wears number 36 as a volunteer assistant at UAB to remind the NCAA of that 36 player who didn't get that opportunity. I love Coach <laughs> Polk's consistency. Um, but anyway, but yes, I, I agree with you pretty wholeheartedly on Title IX, a law of the land. It's not an NCAA rule, it's a federal law. So, and the NCAA kind of had to comply. They really didn't have any choice. And if they'd com- if the schools had tried to comply earlier, I think, uh, they're, compliance would have been a lot less painful for a lot of men's sports and it's unfortunate that baseball bore a lot of that brunt but you know wrestling has had it much tougher um and uh, you know almost just got kicked out of the olympics i think it's going to get back in now but um that would have been a death blow to use a seinfeld reference that would have been a death blow for wrestling uh between the the ncaa cutting back on wrestling and then uh if the olympics had taken it out so i mean yeah it's it's coach polk uh I definitely – I remembered that, and that's, to me, what stands out about Coach Kylitz, and he was a coach at Central Michigan, about Dave Kylitz, is that uh, college baseball has grown so much. And really, Jim, just from the early to mid-'90s when you were the beat writer, um, to see uh, – while the talent level is not in college baseball what it was, say, in the mid-'80s, the golden age of college baseball, from a talent perspective, I do think this is a golden age for college baseball in terms of interest with the growth on TV – the number of programs building their ballparks and drawing fans and the attendance in college baseball, both in Omaha and leading up to it. Um, I do think that Dave Kylos had a lot to do with that by working within the system as opposed to trying to constantly go at the NCAA and attack the NCAA. He just lobbied for baseball's interests within the NCAA, and I think that's been very effective. It may not be you know, what maybe everyone in college baseball thinks would be the absolute best thing for college baseball, but it was maybe a lot of the most realistic growth and realistic progress that college baseball could make within that system, and, and I, I
1: think Dave deserves a lot of credit for that. I think you're right, John, because, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's it'd be easy to rail against the inequities that college baseball faces compared to other sports, but that isn't necessarily going to do any good. And I think right. you hit the you – know, the other thing, and you pointed this out in the article you wrote online – it's not like Dave's constituency <laughs> is unified. I mean, you have a lot of different, you know, self-interests. You know, the the, the, the ACC and the SEC have a little d- different perspective on what college baseball should be than teams in the Northeast or teams in the Big Ten. I mean, not it's not a level playing field. There's different conditions people are dealing with. And he's, he's trying to satisfy a number of constituencies and work with the NCAA, which... Is very I'll be kind. I'll only use the word yeah. There, there you go. going to say labyrinthine organization, but yeah, it's to put it nicely, it's a challenging task to have to work with the NCAA and everything that that entails. And I think yeah, I agree with you. You 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 obviously have covered college baseball a lot more directly than I do these days. But but that's been my sense as well. Is that rather than get angry about what baseball doesn't have or lost or should have but can't get, I think Dave did a has done a very good job of trying to get everything he could and maybe make incremental gains as he could. And you, know, and, you know, baseball is, I mean, it's a lot different than when I stopped covering, you know, stopping our beat writer, you know, 16 years ago. I mean, college baseball is radically different. I mean, the, the, the postseason is a lot better. You have even more new parks. You have even more thriving teams. We still see new faces in Omaha, it seems, almost every year. I, I think there are more. Well, while there have been cutbacks, and there have been more schools dropping baseball. I, I do think that there's more. I want to use the word parity because parity almost implies everybody's coming back to the pack. There are more good programs. I don't think there's any question. And more new ballparks and more successful, you know, baseball programs you know financially and on the field than I think ever before.
2: I think college baseball is in the best shape it's ever been. It may not have the high level talent that did in the 80s but that has nothing to do with the quality of college baseball. It has to do with I mean it's not because of college baseball. It has to do with major league teams learning their lesson of oh you know we're not going to not sign Barry Bonds over six thousand dollars. We're going to do what it takes to sign amateur players and Uh, because Major League Baseball has valued the draft and valued amateur prospects better. That has siphoned off some top-end talent from college baseball, but I think the colleges deserve a lot of credit. We were just talking in the podcast, you were just talking about uh, Indiana, and those two players who may not sign with the Twins. Uh, Indiana is a great example of a program that really uh, signs and develops players very, very well. Uh, North Carolina, I mean, I know he was kind of a guy out of high school, but— you know, Colin Moran wasn't drafted out of high school. I talked to two cross-checkers this year who said, no, nah, I didn't see you – know, they were national guys who said, no, nah, I didn't see Colin Moran in high school because our team didn't turn him in. I think he was only turned in by like three or four teams. We may have written about him, but he was not a consensus guy out of high school and uh, became the sixth overall pick. And I think North Carolina deserves credit for developing Colin Moran. I think, you know, Mississippi State deserves some credit for developing Hunter Renfro. He teams liked him, but no one liked him enough. You know, to draft him higher than the 31st round. I don't remember how much the Red Sox offered him, but it wasn't it wasn't huge. He's obviously gonna uh, his, his investment of his three years in time in Mississippi State will pay off quite well with a World Series finals trip and the signing bonus he's gonna get this week. So, um, you know, I, I think Dave has presided over a very good area in college baseball. We're not here to you know knock Coach Polk. His passion and his heart, his heart's in the right place. His passion is definitely um, uh, earnest and uh, I respect greatly, but I think that I think his approach would not have gotten college baseball to the position it's in now, whereas Dave Kylitz has did. So uh, a interesting sidebar at the end. But I meant to ask you that before off the air and it was a fun discussion to have on the air. So good stuff, Jim. Sorry I took 80 minutes of your time on the podcast, but we hope everybody here uh, enjoyed it. And you'll be on what?
1: MLB Network next week, right? For the AAA All-Star game. Right, which is the 17th, which is Wednesday, I believe. I, I got to figure. It might be the 16th. I I, I should know. Um, I, I, I you know what? It's the 17th because I fly out to Reno on the 16th. So. You've got you've got time to figure. Now, it that's out. That's the story I'm th- sticking to. I'm going to broadcast that on Wednesdays. Who were
2: you over. on with? Uh, you and Hambone, I believe. Yeah, and uh, I think Phil Severino too. Paul Severino. Paul Severino. Sorry, Daryl, Paul. Daryl Hamilton. <laughs> Jim Callis on your AAA All-Star broadcast. I, I have to admit, I will not be watching at the beach. I don't believe my beach house uh, next week that we're renting has MLB Network. So well, maybe Hopefully Ron Paul will be, be
1: watching me. So
2: It'll be on late, so, uh, but we'll look forward. So if you want more Jim Callis, you get it every Friday on MLB Network during the rundown for our prospect hot sheet. Uh, you get him every Wednesday at BaseballAmerica.com chatting, uh, and, and you'll get him next week on the AAA All-Star game broadcast on MLB Network. So thanks, Jim. Uh, multimedia star, thanks for taking the time. That was good. Good talking to you, John. And it need to take the time because there's nobody signing because they've all signed already. <laughs> That's right. We had we had time to spare today. So for Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody.
0: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com.